Uh, I just recently learned yesterday one of Aaron, Aaron, our security guy. Yeah. One of his buddies was here and he said Aaron is like a master debater. <laughs> master baiter? Master baiter. At, of so, the, of the, the bears. After bear baiter. Of the bears. <laughs> of the bears. He's <laughs> 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 that was a wordplay. You're going to have to put a hashy between those It's, it's a lower hashy. It's a, a lower fucking hashy. <laughs> or better known as an underscore. Yeah. No, lower hashy. A regular hashy between those. <laughs> Welcome to the Shoot to Hunt podcast with your host, Ryan Avery, a registered Democrat who loves the 6'5 Creedmoor, and the Jacob O'Shaney. His beard is made of the gypsy pubes. But together, they make the number four podcast in all of the US and A a great success. It is a nice. I'm your host, Ryan Avery. I'm here with Jake Machaney. We just got back from a week of bear hunting. Actually, Jake came him came back early because he had to put on a reloading class. Yes. Our guest took that reloading class. Yes. Kyle Hansen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Before we get started, are you fatter now than you were last oh, week? Oh, that's a good thing you asked me. 215 as of this morning. Yeah, but is that fatter than the last number? 217. Really? I did a lot of walking. I know you did. There was a lot of bear hunting and baiting. Well, every I thought- morning I was, you didn't notice, but I was taking a two-mile walk up the road with Buzz. Oh, did you? Yep. So I kind of noticed that not all the bait was making it up to the bear bait. I thought you were like snacking on the way the, to the bait. Huckleberry licorice. <laughs> so he, he has, our guy we hunt with has, he's an outfitter. He had the bait. It was uh, trail mix, huckleberry licorice, honey. And then he has some special smelly shit. Buttercream frosting. Buttercream. Fro- oh, we had the frosting, but the, the bears. So we had, he got lots of frosting from Brad uh, Peterson. And the bears did not like the orange frosting. They like, huh. pushed it out of the way. They eat vanilla, they eat the chocolate, they eat the buttercream, but anything the orange, they just push it out of the way. Really? It's funny. It is funny. Have you done much bear baiting or bear hunting? A little bit. One of it's my black bear side? Yeah, one of my outfitter contacts, he's he's got baiting down to a science. Like watching him prep a set is like it, it's just beautiful. It's like and it's obviously I don't bait in Iowa, but you know, like preparing a stand set for white tails, there's just so much that goes into it. And he just he's got it down to like an art form and everything that he does. He uses those uh, baitum pellets, I think, yeah. for bait, and he he builds his barrels a certain way, so that way the bears can't crush it, can't break the top open. He's got a big stink bait he hangs up in the tree, and then he uses vanilla extract mm-hmm. as a spray, mm-hmm. kind of like you guys were saying, he used uh, caramel. Caramel. Yeah. Yeah. He does that same thing, but with vanilla extract. You know, I had a feeling that I actually sure ordered. Stick into the. I ordered. Uh, <laughs> you can pull it towards you, like you can move around wherever you want. A little closer. I ordered bacon. So no, just when you turn your head. Uh, yeah, just watch that. I ordered a couple different gallons of caramel that are not that exact picture, mm-hmm. but I basically read the ingredients. It's got like propylene glycol in it, which is basically antifreeze. That's why it's only for for animal feed. Yeah, uh, and there's some other ingredients, but I found a couple different suppliers that make the same shit in a gallon. And a gallon, you know, is around a hundred bucks. And I think that his was a few gallons at that twenty pound mark. So I found a couple to try. And the one place I ordered from, I also got a gallon of bacon flavor. And then they had a lot of stuff like the vanilla, like he's mentioning. So that I also did a little research on that. Mm-hmm. The reason it has it in there is it stay. It'll basically stay longer. Yes. It's like a preservative. Yeah. But it is like deadly to animals, which I find funny. They're putting it in the feedlots. They're putting it into the cows. Huh. Like it's deadly at a high level. At yeah, that yeah. level, it's okay. That's the propylene glycol. Yeah. Yeah. It's fucking deadly. And that's what we're going to feed the cows before we send them off to fucking make steaks out of them. 
Sounds yeah. fucking smart. What <clears throat> monkeys to eat deer? So he uses <laughs> he uses a similar vanilla. It's not you're not spending a bunch of money, so it's not real vanilla extract. They use basically this is what we're talking about. These are flavorings that are made mostly for animal feed, mm-hmm. not for human consumption. Mix it into a big batch of it's other cheaper, shit like corn and- you know, and the, and it's not. But it's so again, it's not real vanilla. These are vanilla flavorings. Yeah, it's it's diluted quite yeah. a bit. Yeah, yeah. Is that uh, this guy's in Idaho does mm-hmm. this? Yep. That Batum stuff is interesting. They grind up those pellets mm-hmm. and they make it. It's like got candy in it. I think I showed you. I've had yeah. it before. Has all kinds. It looks like little burning pellets, but it has it's food mm-hmm. okay. candy. Like alfalfa marsh. pellets. Yeah. Okay. And you can see mm-hmm. like uh, a Bait piece em. of like Jolly Rancher in it. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yeah, like little like blue and red yep. candy pieces. Yep. And they're all compressed. They look like rabbit pellets or something like that, or like those wood burning pellets. And vanilla feedback. Yes. Yeah. Same stuff. Mm-hmm. I think they're in Boise, right? The people that sell that Batum. Maybe. Maybe. I'm not sure exactly. He gets them in Idaho, though. Yeah. I want to say those guys are Boise and the guys. I get a lot of stuff from the, it's 907. Uh, Lucky 7. It's in Alaska. It's 907 Batum. Batum up 907 or something like that. Remember, were you last year when I had all the Anna stuff? Uh Uh-huh. So you're shipping bait down from Alaska. It's just pellets and spray. Okay. And they have like these little bombs you light off and it puts out anise and vanilla like he's kind of talking Mm -hmm. about. It's just getting that scent as far away from the bait as you possibly can. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> what else does when you said it when he creates a set or sets up a bear bait? So he's got a he's got what is he putting up in the tree? He just calls it a stink bait, but it looks like looks like a wax candle. It's just this really dense, greasy thing that he just pulls the plastic top off of. <laughs> is it in a bucket? On it. I think so, but yep. it's. It looks, it looks like a, like a cylinder of wax with like a string in it, and he ties it up in the tree. Okay. And he has to take he has to take cord between two trees and hang it from that cord in the middle. Otherwise, the bears will actually they'll climb up the tree, and they they even try to like shimmy across that like a clothesline to get to that <laughs> stink bait. He's got trail camera footage of bears like hanging on from like one foot and like their jaw even. It's pretty wild. They'll do really? almost anything to get at that stink bait. Huh. But I know people that use like uh, like rock chucks or or like carp or something. They shot throughout the summer and throw them in a bucket and just leave them outside. Use those as a stink bait. Bears like that stuff too. A lot of times huh. I'd use like the spray on lure stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's like you can get garlic, whatever, vanilla. It's like weird, like two combinations that are polar opposites. Mm. Yeah. But uh, I can't find that anymore. The bait that we set up. When we came back, when that first bear hit, that bear, it had buttercream frosting, uh, licorice, and a trail mix. Mm-hmm. The trail mix was demolished, and he didn't touch. Oh, and old honey. It was like crystallized old balls of honey. Mm-hmm. Didn't touch the honey, the frosting, or the licorice, but demolished the trail mix. Like, went underneath everything else to get just to the trail mix. And I thought maybe He's- it has to do with the salt content. So I started thinking, why don't we just sprinkle some Morton salt on top of kind of all of it and give him that extra flavor? He's a... Uh- Salty guy like Mason. Exactly. This kind of thing I was talking about. They're like they're yo-yos and they're scent sticks. They're kind of like that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and they have smell. They smell they like nine oh seven. Very yeah, That might be what he uses. Something like that. Yeah, they've used their. They have some good stuff. Uh, I just recently learned yesterday one of Aaron. Aaron, our security guy. Yeah. One of his buddies was here, and he said Aaron is like a master debater. <laughs> master debater. Master debater. At, of so the, of, of the, the bears. Master bear baiter. Of the bears. <laughs> of the bears. He's, he, 
<laughs> that was a wordplay. You're gonna have to put a hashi between those. It's, it's a lower hashi. It's a, a lower fucking hashi, or better known as an underscore. Yeah. No, You're lower hashi. A regular hashi between those. <laughs> Our my buddy Adam has the outfitting business. He is not a efficient baiter. Yeah. He's a bulk baiter. <clears throat> so he's not a master baiter. He's an intermediate baiter. He's a bulk baiter. Yeah. Bulk baiter. He uh, like. He's just getting, I always asked him, why don't you use barrels? Because he'd like dig holes and put rocks and sticks on it. I was like, fuck, man, between the birds and the, you know, all the elk, like elk, we have a ton of elk on our baits. Mm -hmm. I was like, those, those things are just picking off all that, especially they love the trail mix. It got salty. Mm -hmm. And now he's finally turning the corner to put it in baits. You're going to yeah. keep bait a lot longer. You, you put it in barrels, you're going to keep baits longer. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things like my boss, Russ, what he does, he'll pack in legit 2,500, 3,000 pounds of bait for one set, but he will never go back to that set until it's time to kill. He will never go within shooting distance of that bait because he wants an old bear to dominate that bait, habituate to it. He's going to watch it from a distance until the conditions are just right, and then he's going to stalk in and kill it with his bow. He's trying to kill one bear, though, an outfitter, though. It's more efficient for them to use barrels because they have to go in and top it off. They're going to have multiple clients hunt that set throughout the season. And they're not trying to just kill one bear. They're trying to kill multiple bears. Mm -hmm. And so it depends on what your end goal is, right? Because he, he bear hunts with Zach. Sometimes. Well, I've seen them hunt together. Mm -hmm. And they like, dude, they put a fucking pile of bear bait out. I was mm -hmm. saying 2,500 pounds. Yeah, I've packed bait in with him. It was the, like just a horrible day. <laughs> it's like 70 pound garbage bags filled full of bread, bread and tortillas. I mean, imagine a contractor bag filled up with tortillas. That sucked. Yeah. That, that's how you say you're trying to get the dominant bear in it also, because yeah. what you see a lot when you're baiting bears in general and you have a lot of baits out and it's it's not like a mass amount is you see those boars walk up. I've seen it a lot of times as they walk up, they sniff. If there's no sows around in heat, they just keep going mm -hmm. to where if you're fucking had an epic shit ton of bait out there, you probably keep the sows right around there mm -hmm. and those boars will probably stick around a little longer. That's an yeah. interesting theory. Especially this time of year when they're starting to come into the rut. Yeah. But like Russ, he just killed his big bear this year two weeks ago and it was, I mean, it's still pretty rut basically. It was just giant bear just sitting on the bait, living on it. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, so timing, you know, what time of year? Because, you know, like if you try to bait them in late April, they're not going to be interested yet. <clears throat> Whatever their digestive system hasn't switched over to wanting carbs yet. Mm. But then if you start baiting them in May, eventually that picks up pre-rut and then they start coming to the baits, but they're coming to the baits for different reasons. In June, they come to the baits because they're trying to pick up sows. Yeah, I shot a big <clears throat> red bear last year and the year before he was on one bait one day and then he was five miles away on mm -hmm. another bait so they freaking move around oh yeah yeah i've seen that with my buddies outfitting business too they'll have baits on different peaks and everything you'll see the same bear in the same night even is russ like he's just of that much bait you're just putting on the ground trying to cover the best you can uh he builds i think he calls it a wedge where he takes logs and mm -hmm. kind of just creates that wedge against a tree so that way it also funnels the bear into a certain spot so they can't come up behind the tree and start like pulling the bait back underneath it or whatever. He's only bow hunting, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. And then he, he does try to pick a tree that has canopy. So that way all of his bait, cause he's just using bread and tortillas, whatever. He doesn't want it to get, you know, saturated with rain as much as possible. Um, but he creates that wedge and then just has a gigantic pile right there in the wedge. Man, there's like so many different like ways to bait mm -hmm. bears. It blows me away. 
Yeah. And, and he's trying to do it economically too. You know, I mean, he's, he's not interested in spending hundreds of dollars on bait. He's like, no, I'm just gonna, you know, work hard and be resourceful and turn up bait and it works. So. Does he use any scent? I don't think so. I think he just does a stink bait. Puts like an old nasty carp or rock chuck up in a tree. <laughs> <laughs> he, he literally, he'll take, <laughs> yeah, I packed in the stink barrel with him a couple of years ago. I took the barrel and it was a barrel full of like rock chucks that were in a five gallon bucket sitting behind a shed all summer. <laughs> oh my God. I packed that sucker in and he was like, I'm going to make you uncork that. You know that? I was like, no. <laughs> oh, <you're> like, <laughs> oh my God. Just standing downwind of it. It was awful. <laughs> I can only imagine. Oh, bears love it though. Well, Kyle, we probably should get into questions. And first of all, you should t- you have to tell yourself about you. Yeah. Give us your background, what you do, and Sweet. how you got here. Awesome. Well, first off, thanks for having me on, guys. Mm-hmm. I think really highly of unknown munitions and shoot to hunt. Really appreciate what you guys do. So thanks for what you do. And uh, I'm sure you know I'm a decent customer of yours. Uh-huh. <laughs> my, yes. My, my bench is covered with everything that you guys teach in your class and all the equipment and methods that you use. So. Learned a lot. This is back in Iowa. You got all your loading room back in Iowa. Yeah. I don't know why. I just, I, I, it's in my head right now that you live in Alaska just because going through your feet and everything, looking yeah. at all you do in Alaska. I just, most people don't spend that much time up there. So, yeah, I love Alaska. That's yeah. my, that's my happy place. Um, but about me, what I do. So, my name's Kyle Hansen. I'm born and raised in Iowa City, Iowa. I still live in Iowa City, Iowa. Um, my family's back there. My roots are back there. So, I just, I just commute a lot. Um, drive out west here a lot for my hunts or fly to Alaska for Alaskan hunts. Um, my current occupation and my dream job, I don't plan on leaving for any time at all, foreseeable future. I work with Outdoors International as a hunting consultant. Um, that's a very niche career field. Most people haven't heard of it. So I usually tell people it's kind of like a travel agent for you know hunting. So I help people plan their trips for a living. This is what I do full time. There's not very many consultants or agents out there that are able to do it full time. But um, early on in my career, I found really good success working with Outdoors International and just decided to make it a full time gig. Before that, I was an automotive technician and served part time in the Iowa National Guard as a medic. And um, I really enjoyed that, too. But, you know, when I when I came to Outdoors International, actually, I was a client of Outdoors International's. I had booked a couple of uh, drop camp moose hunts and a black bear hunt in Alaska through Outdoors International. And through that relationship, Russ Meyer and I became really good friends and not only a friend, but also a mentor. And I helped them out doing just volunteer work, you know, referrals, writing articles, content, stuff like that. And so when I actually, Russ just called me to BS one day and he said, uh, I think one thing just led to another I was telling him I'm getting ready to get out of the military and just not passionate about it anymore. And I want to, you know, look for my next mission in life, so to say. And he's like, well, you know, if you worked for me and, and I was like, well, are you offering me a job? And so he's like, well, are you serious? I'm like, well, I'm serious if you are. <laughs> so ended up by, by the following Friday, I was flying out to Idaho for job training. And here I am four years later. So, but yeah, it's kind of the long and short about me and, uh, love to hunt, love to travel and, passionate about shooting and everything outdoors and equipment and everything. My, my first question to that would be, why are you still in Iowa? Um, love my family, love my home. I mean, I'm just comfortable there. You, you got know. wife and kids? Nope. I have an awesome girlfriend and awesome family. So, okay. So I think, uh, they might, 
they might end up getting pushed out west at one point. <laughs> be a little bit more geographically convenient for me. But that's funny. Most people, when they find out I still live in Iowa, they're like, I thought you lived in Idaho or Alaska or something. It's like That's oh, what I, I thought. Just, I just take the two day drive to get here. <laughs> I just, I have the flexibility in my career that I can do that. So like we're kind of in a slow time of year right now. So mm -hmm. I took a week off work to come out here and do some stuff. And that's how dates lined up for this course. So within outdoors international, are you like an expert in certain States? Like in other words, Argentina or Switzerland or something like this, are you consulting on, on hunts in those areas? Or is it like if they call and they want to hunt Idaho or Alaska, they send the call to you? Normally, yes. And so my job title with Outdoors International is a full-time consultant, but I specialize in North American big game hunting. And mm. even more so, <clears throat> I focus on remote, adventurous destination style hunts because that is what I am very passionate about myself. And that's kind of how our crew has just developed organically over time. We just focus on what we're passionate about. And like me personally, you know, Western US, remote wilderness areas, areas of Canada, but especially Alaska, that's just my jam. It's what I love to do when mm -hmm. I spend my own money to go hunting. That's that's where I'm going. It is definitely a different type of hunting than the lodge, yeah. you know, <clears throat> go out and day hunt kind of situation. Yep. It's a different mindset. Yeah, I just love it. I mean, like I when we were getting started here, I was telling Ryan I've hunted the Frank Church wilderness a few times and hunted Alaska a bunch and you know, the, the common theme between those is remote wilderness hmm. destination type adventures, but also very low animal densities. And most people don't realize that, like, you know, most people don't realize there's not that many animals in the Frank church, very low densities, really no different than Alaska. Alaska actually is a very low density game area. Like there's areas of Alaska that are considered high density moose areas that have an average of 1.2 moose per square mile. That's not a lot of moose, you know, and but it's, it's a huge place with a lot of adventure. And I just like having the feeling of having it to myself. I'd rather hunt less animals and have them to myself than, you know, be competing overly, I guess. And then also I just, I just like the remoteness and being able to unplug and go to those places and just, just disconnect really. Who, uh, so you guys aren't specifically an outfitting agency. You are working with other outfitters, I imagine. So when you go into Correct. the Frank church, what outfitter are you using that has those meals and everything that are in your, in your pictures? There's a few that I've worked with there in the past, depends on the area, but you're, you're correct. We are not outfitters and guides ourselves. We do actually have a couple guys in our crew that are guides for different outfits, but we are essentially the agents on the front end that work with outfitters to do their booking, their marketing. And it's kind of a two way service. So the service that we provide for clients there is that we have vetted outfitters and trip providers for quality prior to ever sending a client there. Like most of the places that I would send a client to, I've actually physically been either mm -hmm. as an observer or booked to hunt there myself before, you know, representing that outfitter. And, um, we don't charge extra for that service because our outfitters are paying us for booking and marketing services. And then that also provides a service to the outfitter. And so I really don't like being called a middleman or like an agent per se. I just, it just sounds too salesy for me. And mm. I, just, I just, I don't even consider myself in sales, but, um, that is essentially what it is. You know, I'm, I'm a representative of outfitters that I work with. And, um, you know, going back to your first question, I was like, you know, what do you specialize in? Um, I personally work with I think between 30 and 40 outfitters right now as a representative of their team. So, mm. so in the Frank church, what's your number one choice for outfitter? Um, 
You know, I've hunted a ton with my buddy Caleb in the Middle Fork zone. He owns a place called Wilderness Mule Outfitting. Yeah, I definitely have to give him credit. So he's. Hey, Kyle, will you just pull that straight down below you? <coughs> below Just me. so when you turn your head, it's catching you. Yeah, then you can just talk to it. Turn towards us like me. Then it's blocking my monster. So Wilderness Local is Wilderness Mule Outfitting, and that's Caleb. Yep. He's a really good guy. Okay. I've hunted with him a bunch. That's in the Middle Fork? Yeah, Middle Fork. Middle Fork. Yeah, I won't say his exact area just to keep people out of there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, too many strips back there. He doesn't kill any elk anyways, probably, so don't go there. No, doesn't kill any elk or deer. Uh, or Onyx, my, my, I listened. To, the reason I have this in my head is my wife's a travel agent. Oh, so cool. she like specializes in like Disney. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know. Fucking woke. I <laughs> <laughs> um, you love Disney, Ryan. I I love my wife. So mm-hmm. that's a good answer. Um, you guys, and I think this is like a misnomer. You guys aren't. There's no increased payment. When you guys, you know, I used to call them consultants. Mm-hmm. The outfitters paying you. The peer person that's paying for the hunt is paying you nothing. Correct? Technically, the outfitter is paying. Me. That's what I mean. Yep. So yep. people say, well, if I go with him, it's probably going to be a little more. He's going to yep. try to upsell me. That's not how it works. That's a good point. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, just for ex- explanation purposes, let's say if if you were to call Caleb or call me, mm-hmm. um, a one-on-one fully guided elk hunt, seventy-seven fifty. Either way, there is no additional charge from the client to work through me. However, when you are working through me, you have an additional concierge service, logistical support. Caleb, um, most of the time our communications are through inReach. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, because these guys, they just live in the wilderness. And so it's very advantageous for them to work with someone like me who is an extension of their operation. Because I've, I've literally been in the Frank Church like five times alone just with him. And so, I mean, I know... I know the name of half of his stock at this point and all of his guides. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when he can send me a text, yeah, I'm going to have Vo's guide, Jim, or whatever. Let him know that. I'll be in touch with him the Thursday before the hunt. His flight mm-hmm. is at 7 a.m. at a at a chalice or where, wherever, McCall. Um, you know, I, I can relay that information as if I'm an extension of his staff. And, that, and that's also my goal, too. You know, I want to be mm-hmm. really, really good at providing that service to the outfitter. Which then, you know, that of course translates to doing a really good job for the client as well. See, and we just went on an outfit hunt with Bitterroot Outfitters, mm-hmm. and all out. And I'm not just pointing them out; just I've been on a few outfit hunts. They fucking suck at communication to Horrible. where you're there to fill in all the fucking detailed is questions. The biggest weak point of outfitters, yep. unfortunately, and it's not mm-hmm. because they don't want to. Usually, it's oh, because yeah. they just yeah. physically cannot. And so, like. Uh, Yesterday, I just got an in-reach text from my friend James in Alaska that I'm hunting bears with next year. And he's like, yeah, killed a killed a eight foot seven grizz. I think he's going to go 26. It's incredible. You know, it's like, I mean, it's just an average day getting texts like that and having conversations with outfitters that are just remote. That's an interior grizzly? That one was, yeah. Eight, seven. Yeah, that's a, that's a toad. Yeah. Yeah, for reference, Boone and Crockett's 24. And mm. yeah, Barry killed yesterday, probably pushing 26. Wow. That's ridiculous. Uh-huh. That bear that I killed in Alaska last year. This is 26. 26 is the diameter of the length and width of the skull. Length and width. Length plus yep, width. Taken with steel calipers. Okay. Yeah. But that's, that's a just, big set of calipers. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're the 18-inch ones you get on Amazon. Okay. Yeah, but it has to be a f- completely, well, to do a green score, it just has to be fleshed out. But um, for an official score, I think it has to dry a certain number of days and be mm-hmm. completely cleaned off and stripped. Hmm. Yeah, like that bear that I killed last year was like 
a 16th or an eighth inch off Boone and Crockett. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a giant bear. Yeah. So like 25, 26 is like next level. Ryan's kind of got kind of got me hooked on bears a little bit now. Bears so are I've awesome. been thinking bears a lot of bears. Fun. You know, uh, yeah. It is a different kind of animal than the whole deer, elk, moose species. I think you know the fact that they never quit moving. Just a fact. It's almost I don't want to call them human, but they have like I keep seeing these videos of the bear like scratching his back mm-hmm. up on the tree and shit. And it just you, it's almost like you can relate to a bear, mm-hmm. yeah, more than other animals. Yeah, well, and bear hunting, you know, spring bear hunting, it gets cabin fever out. But man, I do enjoy bear hunting, and like I am going to go kill an interior grizzly. I have no. We're gonna go together. I'm for shoot to hunt. Hell yeah. With Kyle. There you go. Yeah. I have no love. Like, I've been to Kodiak, seen the Co- I have no, to me, that's like, and people get mad if I say this, it seems like the the easiest button of bears. And I'm sure there's a size quality you got to try if you're trying for a size quality. But that interior grizzly seems like a hunt. Mm. So, you know, for me personally, I, I favor the grizzly bear experience over the coastal brown bear experience. Now, either way, hunting big bears in Alaska, it's kind of a similar program. A lot of glassing, probably 90% glassing and, you know, less than 10% actually hunting, right? Which, I mean, that is hunting. But in coastal areas where you're just sucking it up, you're, you're just enduring, you know, for that one moment where you can go after a bear. And then also <clears throat> because bears, especially big bears and brown and grizzly bears in Alaska, they're so sensitive to human presence like legit, when I hunted bears there last year, my guide and I, we flagged a trail 800 yards to our glassing point. We did not deviate from that trail the entire time of our hunt until it was time to go stalk and kill because we're trying to minimize our human presence. And actually, I'll recommend a book for you after this. I just can't I can't remember the name of it. It was written by a guy named Tony Russ. It was like, like grizzly or brown bear hunting in Alaska. That is regarded as the Bible of big bear hunting in Alaska. And every concept and principle that he speaks of in that book still applies to this day. It's like a 10 or 20 year old book now, uh-huh. but it goes over how to hunt big bears in Alaska. And you were hunting interior grizzlies with that trail deal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now when you see, okay, so I, I know shit about Alaska and I know a lot of guys are probably in my same boat. Like it's exciting to think about a big bear, but you don't. Mm-hmm. So, so I understand there is a, there's Kodiak. Yeah. So you have a, it's a Kodiak grizzly. This is like the trophy everybody's trying to get after. Is that correct? So the difference between a coastal brown bear and an interior grizzly bear is its geographical location. A coastal brown bear is considered a coastal brown bear if it is south of the 62nd parallel line, which includes areas such as Kodiak, Afognak Island, the peninsula, and across the, you know, like southern coast of Alaska per se. Um, you could have a bear that is just north of that line that looks just like a coastal brown bear, but now it's considered a grizzly. So it's kind of like coastal. Okay, so black, black black tail mule deer. You know, it's like, like the base leg deer. Yeah. yeah, the ones guys are paying thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars to kill. Brown bear. That is a coastal brown bear, but it can be any of those areas. Like you, you seem mm-hmm. like that was very well rehearsed. How you just went through like the locations, <laughs> right? So I'm sure that you've explained this a couple times, but yeah. again for the layman, so that's so coastal brown bear. Otherwise known as a Kodiak grizzly, mm-hmm. but is it, why do why do why in my head is Kodiak associated with grizzly? Then is that where the big guys are, or just well, sought after? So interestingly, so the biggest bears killed in Alaska are coastal brown bears. Um, for reference, also Boone and Crockett on a coastal brown bear is twenty eight inches. We were just talking about grizzly bears, interior grizzlies, Boone and Crockett's 24 inches. Okay. Um, I apologize if I'm off on any of this, but I'm pretty confident about that. Um, 
of the last 10 years in the Boone and Crockett books, seven out of 10 bears came from the peninsula, three out of 10 came from Kodiak or other areas of Alaska. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that peninsula has the biggest bears, but we're also comparing sample size. Kodiak Island is this very small place, and Kodiak Island bears are known for larger skulls on average than the peninsula, which the peninsula and Kodiak Island are the places where the biggest bears are coming from pretty much in the world. Um, but the peninsula is just a bigger place. And so, like, I mean, if you're looking on a map, the peninsula is this big, Kodiak's this Got big. Got it. You know, so just sample size. Um, Kodiak Island, on average, has slightly larger skulls, but the peninsula, on average, has bigger physical bears because skull size and then physical size of a bear are very different things. You know, yeah. you know, you could have a large skull bear, but not as large of a square. A square uh -huh. being the length, claw to claw, and the nose to tail. Add those two together, divide by two. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so. What does all that rambling mean? Both places are really good, but yeah. they're, just, they're, they're a little bit different experiences. So for the for the guy that is not a millionaire who may, you know, the guy listening on the other end of this who's thinking, man, I'd love to go hunt a bear in Alaska. Mm -hmm. Interior grizzly first is the better choice. Now, can you hunt interior grizzly without a guide or a local with you? You cannot. You so cannot. the rule in Alaska is if you are a non-resident hunter, you either have to hunt with a licensed guide or next of kin relative. And Are you so, either of those to us? No. Okay. So not. what would we do in that situation if we went together? You'd have to go through a guide. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I do. Uh, well, I do know some locals in Alaska, but they're not next of kin. Yeah. You could, uh, you know, one guy could, you know, just take one for the team and go marry a native lady up there. Got too. it. Got it. Ryan, <laughs> you need a, you're going to have an Eskimo. <sighs> Man, I've been trying to get my son to, he's in the Air Force, I've been get trying to get him to, get him to move up there and Yeah, go like that's, kill I think that's what like, a lot of the stuck-in-the-rut guys did. And one of the guys worked up there on the pipeline long enough to be a resident, and then mm -hmm. he started going up there, and then now uh, Adam yeah, lives up there. Brenda. Yeah. So on the breakdown of that, what's the cost difference between a Kodiak bear or brown well, bear? Yep. Versus a gri inlet interior grizzly. Okay. Inter so interior grizzly versus coastal brown. Coastal brown bear. It can be almost half the cost to hunt a grizzly in some cases than a coastal brown bear. So on average right now, um, like a seven to 10 day spot and stock style grizzly bear hunt, like what I did last year, on average costs 17 to 20,000. Coastal brown bear, um, whether it be Kodiak <laughs> or the peninsula, Average cost is between thirty and thirty-five thousand, and there's places charging forty-five plus. I know of one place that charges fifty to seventy thousand. I haven't checked recently on a vessel-based, like legit, a five-star yacht vessel-based brown bear hunt out of like Prince William Sound, and Ugh. yeah, and so like when I have clients that contact me and say, "Hey, I, I want to shoot a really, really big brown bear." First thing I ask them is, okay, do you do you want to shoot a coastal brown bear or do you want to hunt a grizzly bear? Because there are very different experiences. I kind of trailed off on that earlier. I apologize. Hmm. Um, but if somebody says, no, 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 I want the biggest of the biggest, the coastal brown bear, it's like, okay. My first choice is the peninsula because we have guaranteed tags there. So you don't have to draw a tag. Um, however, um, the peninsula has a spring and a fall season, spring season on even number years and fall season on odd number years. And then it's only like a, like a 15 or 20 day season or something like that. So it's very short. 
but they kill absolute crusher bears, but it is a guaranteed tag. Whereas most of the areas over on Kodiak, you have to draw. And so. And what about the interior? Most of those are a non-draw as well. Interior Grizzly basically covers the whole state of Alaska at that point. Anything away North from the coast. North of the 62nd parallel line. North of the 62nd parallel. Yep. Okay. Yep. And so, you know, just for me from a planning standpoint and also advocating for a client, you know, do you want to put a deposit down on a hunt that you don't know if you're going to draw next year or three years from now? Because they're not hard to draw, but they do have to be drawn and you'll get it within three years statistically. Or if, you know, if you're the guy going on his once in a lifetime hunt, I want to know that I'm going two years from now because I need to budget. I need to chunk this out in quarters. I want to put 25% down next year, put another 25%, so on and so forth. I need to budget for that. Mm. I don't want to just, you know, all of a sudden have to come up with that much money, you mm. know, short notice when you draw. And I don't know, you know, sometimes people that do these hunts, they can go same year and it's really not an object, you know, the money wise, but I mean, that's, that's my personal advice. I would go for the peninsula over Kodiak, but Kodiak is a pretty amazing place to hunt. I love hunting Kodiak, but I've only hunted blacktail deer there. I've never hunted brown bear there. Me too. So, me too. It's awesome. So, so if you're a normal guy who doesn't want to spend twenty thousand dollars on an interior grizzly hunt, mm -hmm. you really have no option. Then there are other options. Okay. So you could also do like a baited grizzly or brown bear hunt. Those are typically in the mid teens, um, and a lot of those are actually classified as brown bears, but they're they're not like right on the coast. They're inland just a little bit, but still mm -hmm. south of that line. What if you're a hunter that's that's capable with gear and your abilities to pretty much you're a diy type of guy mm -hmm. and you really need somebody there just with you because it's it's legally required like they're not setting up wall tents for you they're not mm -hmm. guiding you they kind of just basically set up a drop camp and they may be there for legal purposes or whatever is that is that something um not really mm, not really yeah. i mean you can Sometimes there's better deals to be had. You know, so when you went and killed timing. your bear, you paid somebody 15, 20 grand to go do that with them? Mm. Damn. Well, you're, yeah. You kind of touched on something. I see them pop up all the time. What's the what's the validity of the cancellation hunts? Are they are they warnings? Are they good ones? Do you guys do cancellation hunts we at do. a better price? Yeah, we do. Or what you guys could do, since you guys want to go together, you can oftentimes get a pretty significant price break doing a two-on-one hunt rather mm. than a one-on-one -on -one hunt, which is two hunters to one guide ratio. Or a four-on-one Oh, man, that might, that might be asking a lot. But <laughs> well, I don't know. There's going to be two unhappy people at least. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. We do, we do really good on two-on-ones. Like the place that I went for my grizzly, we do really well on two-on-ones there. And we've done three-on-ones, but it's just like expectations have to start lowering. You yeah. know, like you're not mm -hmm. going to pass that seven-and-a-half-foot boar trying to kill well, an eight-foot That would be me. Know? That would be my bear. Yeah. So I, why I, let I don't even think I'm beginning to think he's a vegan. That's why I let Mason shoot all the bears now <laughs> because one everything. day, yeah. one day we're gonna be the last and be like Mason, it's finally my turn. Yeah, like yeah. the last week, he's like Mason shot a bear and then another bear came in. I was like, you're not gonna shoot it. He's like, no, I'm gonna let Luke shoot it. That's so because like, Luke never shot a bear. Fucking nice guy. Yeah, yeah, I am a nice guy. Um, yeah, so there are deals to be had like that, like two on one versus uh -huh. one on one. But as far as cancellations, cancellations are not as prevalent as people think that they are like people that you know, I hate to say this, but you know, sometimes I've had clients before that they'll book a cancellation with us, which, you know, will advertise a hand for a handful a year. And then from then on forward, then they only want to book a cancellation. It's like, mm -hmm. well, 
you're kind of at the mercy of time and whatever is available on that cancellation yeah. going forward if you rely on that. And so, I mean, it's it's kind of cool to have that opportunity if you can go short notice and you can pull it together financially. But the reality of a cancellation is if somebody goes on a cancellation severely discounted, it means that somebody else already paid for it. Yeah. And that that's a bad situation too. Like I hate it when that happens, which I mean, that's why I, I can go into that at some point too. Like I, on these big hunts, my rule of thumb, if you can't drive there or if there's a bush plane involved, I tell all my clients to use like trip insurance policies. So mm -hmm. I'm sure you're familiar with that. They're like three to 5% the cost of your hunt. But like if your trip gets canceled by weather, if you get sick, COVID, break your leg, can't make your hunt or whatever, you can get reimbursed. Mm -hmm. Cause like I've had people have to cancel a hunt because of injury just a couple weeks before a hunt and lose half their deposit. Well, most of the time they have trip insurance and then that hunt gets sold cancellation two weeks out for like half price. So we have those come up. I mean, there's at least one or two a year. We ought to get on some lists because luckily Ryan and I have the ability to just kind of get up and go if yeah. we need to. Right. So we should get on some. We should get well, on some lists. Well, we we know too. a guy. We know well, a guy. Well, that's very true. If you if you just have your name out there enough, say, hey, I want to go on cancellation. Mm -hmm. um, another reason why these things just don't ever get advertised is because there's already normally, guys. normally within a couple phone calls, I don't need to advertise. It's sold. Have to right. have a week for a full well, conference calls. Trying well, to sell any any short. any <laughs> any bear hunts in Alaska that put us on the list. All right, I'll uh, keep yeah. you in mind. Yeah, if anything comes, we can up. get up and go. Sweet. More mm. on the interior. I really have yeah. no. Yeah, more on the interior. No coastal. No mm -hmm. desire to shoot. I don't, I don't like the ocean. Yeah. Coastal, coastal <laughs> hunts are. Yeah. You don't have oh. to be on the ocean. Shoot. I don't know. It just scares me. <laughs> yeah. The ocean, the ocean's pretty, pretty amazing. But oh, but yeah, coastal is cold and wet, and it's just mm. sometimes it can be beautiful, but other times, like it can just be the most miserable hunt you ever go on. Yeah. But that is how you kill coastal brown bears. It's just sitting there glassing, which that's why I, you know, kind of going back where I trailed off earlier, I really favor the grizzly bear hunt because you can do it in these, you know, just beautiful destinations like say the Brooks range or Wrangles or any of these other mm -hmm. areas where, you know, you're surrounded by beautiful mountain peaks. You're in the tundra, you see the colors change, see the Northern lights, um, see yeah. bears feeding on salmon streams in the fall. I mean, they're just, they're just such amazing places to just exist first and foremost. And then, hey, hunting a trophy grizzly bear. And mm -hmm. then also something that's kind of intriguing, the area that I've hunted grizzly bears in northern Alaska, that area has a very wide color phase variation. So, that, I mean, they have bears, everything from like bright blonde to like dark, dark chocolate. Mm. It's just really cool to see that variety and then see a high density of bears, too. Mm -hmm. I like the fact, in my mind anyways, that interior grizzly is a hardy fucker. He's not living off a of fish mm. like the coastal brown bear fat bastard. <laughs> That grizzly dead has, wells. yep, dead wells, you yeah. know, anything washes up on shore. That interior grizzly is working for his mm -hmm. food, kind of. I like yeah. the thought They're more aggressive that. animal in general, too. The big brown bears, they can be kind of docile. Mm -hmm. Very dangerous still, but. On, on it, on the stay on outdoor, what else, like, do you offer, you offer pretty much anything in the world, elk hunts, like African oh, yeah. African I wanted to know about stuff. caribou. Caribou, caribou would be the only, caribou would be the other animal in Alaska that sounds pretty yeah. freaking awesome, like seeing a migration Mm -hmm. and picking out a caribou, that kind of thing. Uh, you have yeah. experience with that? Yeah, quite a bit. I've hunted caribou a couple times. I've taken a couple up there. Um, you know, going back to guided versus unguided, um, caribou, moose, black tail deer, black bear, and actually muskox, you can hunt in Alaska without a guide. 
you only need a guide for grizzly, brown bear, sheep, and mountain goat. And so those other species, um, kind of excluding muskox, because that's harder than drawing a lower 48 sheep tag, getting that tag up there. But um, caribou and like black-tailed deer or moose, those are some of the best first-time Alaskan hunts that a guy could go do, especially if you're a proficient Western hunter and you just need a DIY drop camp. And it's a lot more affordable too. Like a drop camp caribou hunt, typically like five to 7,000 bucks a guy will cover all of your flights in and out of the field. It'll be for all your, if you drop a caribou, getting everything out yep. and all that good stuff, yep. five to seven. Okay. Yep. It'll typically cover all transportation in and out of the field to include getting animals harvested out of the field. Sometimes it even includes like a camp gear rental and food package. So you don't have to ship all your stuff up or bring additional checked luggage. That's kind of what I favor because those are fairly inexpensive. And at least the transporters that I've worked with, they do a pretty good job putting that together. And so those are a lot more affordable opportunities for somebody to go and experience Alaska. And like in the case of like drop camp caribou hunts, the place that we've worked out of is a very similar area to where I send most of my grizzly bear hunters to. Mm. They're kind of in different sides of the unit. Like the western side of the unit has higher density of grizzly. The eastern and northern side has a better density of, of caribou. But generally speaking, they're very similar experiences where you're still camping in this really incredible place and you get that same week long drop camp backcountry Alaska experience, but you're doing it for, I mean, door to door with all your commercial travel, incidentals, tags, license, tips, food, everything. I mean, you're still under 10, you know, versus adding another 5,000 incidentals set and done to an already $20,000 hunt. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you're in it a lot less. And actually, I've hunted Alaska personally eight times now, and only two of those have been guided for grizzly bears. They've all, the rest of them have been DIY unguided, just more budget-minded hunts. Mm -hmm. yeah. Is there a certain time of year if you want to see like the caribou migration you see on TV, if you want to see that in person, there's a certain time of year? So yes and no. Um, depends on the herd that you're hunting. Depends on the size of herd and the herd dynamic because not all herds of caribou are actually migratory. Okay. Yeah, I, I think actually the majority of herds in Alaska are non-migratory residential herds, um, whereas like the migratory herds are more going to be like the northern herds across Alaska, like up in the Brooks Range. Those are more common for that quote unquote migration. But like one of the areas that we've sent people for caribou drop camps in the past, it's such a large herd spread out across such a wide area, like almost 200 miles that it's actually kind of rare to see that, you know, like like Eastman's YouTube video, mm -hmm. picturesque Quebec Labrador migration that mm -hmm. everyone's seen that video of. Mm -hmm. um, it's more of like a steady trickle most of the season. And then once they do get bunched up in these big groups of thousands, that's where it's like actually feast or famine. And I actually don't like hunting during that time period, okay. which that's late September. That's not my favorite because it's like go three days without seeing a caribou and then all of a sudden you have a herd of a thousand right there. It's like because they're all bunched up now, whereas all the, the rest of the season, as they're kind of pre-migratory and getting ramped up, they're more of like a steady flow. And I would rather have 50 to 100 animals to hunt a day rather than, you know, just, you know, once a week, a thousand animals or whatever. Mm -hmm. So and that's kind of my opinion on caribou. But mm. generally speaking, um, with caribou, because it is such a long season, they're typically over two months for non-residents. Um, before like August 25th or September 1st, you're hunting velvet antler caribou after that they're hard horns. So that can be kind of a deciding factor if guys are like, no, I want hard horn or no, I'd prefer velvet or I don't want to go and potentially the weather's worse. So I'm going to go August versus September. And then you also have to keep in mind too, that a lot of people, they, 
they don't realize how cold it actually gets in August in mm -hmm. northern Alaska. So, I mean, like from the last week of August on can be full on winter up there. And it, it's not nearly as buggy in August as people think that far in the hemisphere north. Mm -hmm. um, now, July, that's that's summer. That's buggy. Mm -hmm. that's, that's why we don't go there. Yeah. So, so hard, hard antlered caribou just mm -hmm. after September 1st. Yep. Okay. Hmm. Yep. They'll start loosening up around like the 20th, 25th. And then from like right around that September one through September 5th time period, they're pretty mm -hmm. much all cleaned off usually. Okay. Now, logistically, if you were to leave, let's say out of Seattle headed towards Anchorage or whatever, like what, how many, how many skips and hops That's to easy. get to that area? Yep. So all your flights going up to Alaska are going to be via Alaska airlines yeah. and Alaska airlines has flights from all major hubs to include Seattle, Washington. And that's actually one of the easiest ways to get up there. You'll have one leg from Seattle up to Anchorage. You'll have a layover there to go to the village that you're going to fly out of most likely. Some of these places like on the far Northern slope, like up out of like Prudhoe Bay, dead horse area, those are going to have more legs within the state. But generally speaking, most of the flights within Alaska you're always going to land in Anchorage, have a layover of some kind, and then fly to your village that you're going to charter out of in a bush plane. And so, like, in the case of, like, where we've sent most of our people for caribou, it's out of Kotzebue, Alaska, in northwestern Alaska. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, nice. maybe, like, two and a half hours for you guys from Seattle to Anchorage, maybe three hours tops. Mm -hmm. And then hour and a half flight from Anchorage up to Kotzebue, and then you're in a little native village that there's nothing to do besides... Go sit in a hotel and wait to get flown into the field. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's nice. funny too. All these little villages, if you ever go out there, you'll see it. They all have the same like three restaurants there too. You can get burgers and fries, Chinese food or pizza. So okay. There's like three restaurants in every single little <laughs> village. So like besides sitting at a hotel and eating pizza, you have nothing to do. So mm -hmm. They're not very exciting places and they're actually usually pretty primitive. Okay. Nice. Yeah. On those trips, do you generally see... I mean, how often do you see them getting delayed on either end, mm. fog-wise? Like, you know, going to Kodiak, you've been there. we got fog yeah. going in, fog going out, d delay on each side a day. Do you see that much on the interior yeah. of Alaska? Yeah, I think so. You know, and it can be a little bit of timing dependent. Like, I think September as a whole in Alaska seems to see the most precipitation of any month throughout the 12-month mm -hmm. year. And me personally, I'm averaging about one out of three bush flights get delayed just me personally in the eight hunts that i've been on interestingly i've actually never been delayed hunting on kodiak I've really just, i've gotten so lucky like last year i went late november in kodiak and that's that's the week that nobody else wanted which is why i took it and it was one of the best weeks of the year we just lucked out on weather so it can be a little bit of luck dependent but has that uh one deer slowed you guys down at all going to one deer just from three you know i think it will eventually you know, pretty much everyone that I have on the books is kind of of the same opinion, like, oh, darn, you know, I really wanted to take two. I didn't even want to take three. I just wanted to carry two tags, even if I only take one. But it's nice to have the option. However, I still have a good attitude because I'm not going there just for deer. I'm going there for the Kodiak experience. I want to hunt fox. I want to fish. I want to waterfowl. I want the whole experience. And so really, you know, taking a second or third deer is actually just mm -hmm. such a small fraction of that overall experience because all of those things together is the the blacktail hunting experience. Right. It's not just the deer. But yeah. personally, yeah, it bums me out because it does because I I've never go bucks. back. I'll never go back. Really? For one, fuck no. But I might go back if I can try to figure out how to kill one of those fucking feral reindeer. Yeah. 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 yeah I didn't know you could. 
buy a tag or I would have killed one the first time I was there because I oh, didn't yeah. know they exist. And I'm like, what the fuck are these caribou doing here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, no, those are feral reindeer. I was like, what's the difference? It yeah. looks like caribou to me. That was pretty cool. So yeah. just what so is the know, difference between a caribou and a reindeer? Where it came from. So okay. a reindeer came from Europe. Got it. Caribou is North America. Got it. So like um, over the caribou or reindeer that were introduced onto Kodiak, as well as um, some of the Aleutian chain islands, those are all actually reindeer that were, to my understanding, introduced from European location for sustenance purposes. And so like, um, oh, like over on Greenland, that's actually the Canadian Central Barren Ground caribou um, hmm. from Canada. However, then you jump from Greenland over to Europe, just over in Norway. Now that's a reindeer again. So it's just where they originally came from. Hmm. What about Canadian brown bear versus Alaskan? So Canada actually does not have the same separation of grizzly versus brown bear. And so you could actually just jump right over to the Canadian line. And those are all grizzly bears. Hmm. Um, And something interesting about all these different species classifications in that book, I recommended, I think that Tony mentioned at one point, Alaska had over 20 subspecies of Hmm. brown and grizzly bear. I, I can never remember which one it is if if all brown bears are grizzly bears or if all grizzly bears are brown bears, but then there's different classifications. Uh, it's like <clears throat> Ursos horribilis is grizzly, Ursos something or others. How how bear. does like SCI or Boone and Crockett separate those from coastal to grizzly in the on the Canadian side? Well, can't hunt them on the Canadian side. Oh yeah, that's right. They're communists. Columbia. I forgot. However, I I'm not mistaken, you can get a grizzly bear tag in the Yukon. Northwest Territories too, can't you? That I don't know. <laughs> I thought you can kill bears. So it's it's not it's not brown bears that you're killing then in Canada. You're saying BC banned all grizzly yeah, bear hunting. Like five, six years ago. Okay. Yeah. They uh, discontinued the grizzly bear hunt in British Columbia. Wow. So you can't kill any bears up there? Just black bears. Black bears. Have you, have you set up any polar bear hunts? Yes. Sweet. Where does that go down at? Typically, those are going to be in... Northern Territory, there are some areas in Northwestern Territory, as well as Nunavut Territory. Those are all native territories of Canada, um, especially Nunavut. That is where the majority of polar bear hunts take place. And um, those are cool. Those are really neat uh, hunts. I'm done. Gotta be expensive. Pol- oh. Those are, I, I don't think I'm ever going to go get a polar bear. Okay. Yeah. Okay. They're, they're extremely expensive and... It's all driven by demand because North American 29. Yeah. Only one way to kill a polar bear. Just a very isolated market. And the permits have just continued to go up and up and up and up from the native territories where they, they can just charge whatever they want because mm. people, people want pay it. it. What, are your, what are your options? Oh. I'm naive mm. to it. Is there any polar bear hunting in northern Alaska? Not for us. As native. residents or non-residents, you have to be a native Gotcha. Yeah, but there are polar bears in northern Alaska. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Do you often advise uh, hunting customers through Outdoors International on cartridge and bullet choice, depending on where they're going? Is that often yeah. a conversation? Fair amount. I actually really enjoy that conversation. Okay. Um, but I have... <laughs> so I, on this, uh, we're going interior grizzly then. We're going up to Alaska. What would you advise us for uh, a bullet choice and cartridge? Well... I'd start off by saying that I work with all dynamics of clients. You know, the guy that is a total geek, like we are here, um, to the guy that, you know, has his 
30 cal elk rifle that that's all he has. It's all he wants to use. And so I try to be able to accommodate both those people. And I'd start out by saying that for a grizzly bear specifically, your 30 caliber elk rifle with a heavy for caliber bullet that is meant for heavy game. So something maybe bonded or monolithic will work just fine for grizzly bears. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're doing coastal brown bear, minimum 338. There's people that have used seven and 30 cal, but it's just not a good idea. The things just take it like a man. So all and, bears in Alaska, though, we're talking bonded, monolithic, something's going to stay together and punch through. Yeah. Okay. And there's guys that have great luck with using even things like, like a burger. Oh. I know somebody that killed a coastal brown bear with a 230 OTM. Worked mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. I saw the video. Yeah, I mean, it worked. But generally speaking, something bonded that is going to go all the way through the bear to get full penetration or to be able to sh- take shots at multiple angles. Mm-hmm. Because after you've put the first shot in that bear, it's just get as much as you can in it because big Joy's bears down. will always go for brush until they're immobilized. And so, like, I could show you a video of my grizzly bear that I killed last year. The first shot, I hit him high lung and shoulder. And it shocked him enough where he dropped, but then he got all charged up and pissed off full of adrenaline and he couldn't get his back legs under him because it shocked him so hard. I think it just, you know, whatever shocked his spine. He what bullet was that? A 246 Hammer Hunter out of a 338 Norma going 2,900 feet per second. Okay. Yeah. Did you recover any of, the, of those? How many rounds you put in them? Four. They all go straight through? Yeah. You can see in the video, actually, even the pedals flying different directions on the offside. Oh, nice. And... The thing I would do different about that is if you go mono, go light for caliber. Mm. You want them moving faster, I believe. Just yeah. more shock. Yeah, It worked, but, and even though it worked so well, I think I still would change that. Pers- that how, how many rounds setup. did you put in him? Four. Okay. The first one shocked him and he <clears throat> dropped, and then he got all charged up and started spinning. But he was like spinning looking for where it was coming from. Uh-huh but he couldn't get his back legs under him. And so he was just kind of stuck there with his back legs immobilized because it just, it shocked him so hard. And then every shot after that, he didn't even flinch. It was like, it didn't even affect him. He was so charged up. Throughout your hunting career and all the hunts you've been on with clients, all that good stuff. Have you had many experience where a bullet just didn't do what it was supposed to do? Didn't kill an animal, animal got away. Any opinions on a bullet you'd never use? Just, just all of those things. Um, You know, me personally, I really can't think of one right now. I can think of more weapon failures than anything else. Like I had a couple of guided caribou hunters that went up to Kotzebue and did a guided caribou hunt up there. And um, it was actually with the guide that I killed my bear with. There were a couple of my clients that came in a week or two after my bear hunt and hunted with my guide that I was hunting with. And we stayed in touch via inReach. And he let me know that they missed the two biggest caribou he's seen in his whole career <laughs> because their scope mounts were loose. And so here's oh. here's these two guys that, you know, and I'm not picking on them at all, but, um, you know, they've waited two, three years for this guided caribou hunt. And they came up and missed caribou at like three, 400 yards several mm. times, unloaded rifles on these caribou multiple mm. times. And the outcome of that hunt was they went one for two. Um, had equipment failures that had to be resolved in the field, almost ran out of ammo reciting in, and then they were both disappointed with that experience. Mm. But what's the root cause of that problem? Equipment. Loctite. Yeah. Loctite. Loctite. Yeah. Loctite. Yeah. But interestingly, on bullet choice, um, the only one that I'm really skeptical of is um, the 143 ELDX. Mm. A friend of mine uh, over at Viking Armament 
they test all of their rifles and what they recommend to all their clients through an outfit that they also own, Dillinger River Outfitters. And so Grant over at Viking Armament, he was telling me how he personally guided a sheep hunter and had him shoot a sheep with a 6.5 PRC with one of their rifles, and they were using 143s. And he said that he thought they were missing the sheep, but they did recover the sheep. They shot it like five, six, seven times. Mm. It was just like pinholing through or something. And so they will not recommend that mm. factory load. They recommend a 147. We make so, the same recommendation, I think. I've, yeah. I've said in a pre previous podcast, the weirdest two animals died. But the mm -hmm. weirdest two bullets that I've seen hit animals were 163 ELDXs out of a 7 mag. Yeah. 162. 160. I keep saying 163. And then a 143. 162. And they didn't. Yeah. They did the exact opposite. They just pie-shaped wound channel, 6, 8 inches deep. They, they grenaded, basically. You'd think what the ELDM you think would do, the ELDX did. Gotcha. So I'm with yeah, you. And so That's surprising to hear, though, from, from my perspective, because looking through your feed and everything. You've been a part of a lot of hunts, I think. Mm -hmm. And obviously your job is talking to hunters about bullets mm -hmm. similar to us. And and to say that you haven't had an animal get away or an experience that pops out in your mind, that's pretty awesome if you think about it. Yeah, it, it is. I, th I, think that's, yeah. you know, I think there's a lot of dogma about, you know, bullets like shot placement. You know, like yeah. if somebody's like, oh, that, that burger worked terribly. It's like, well, what was it? It was a 195 burger out of a 28 nozzler. Okay, well, I've used that combination, and it's like the hand of God when it hits a bear. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like, where <laughs> like did I, you hit it? Yeah, like, where did you hit it? Show it's me the a, video, and it's like, okay, shot placement. It is. So it's it, placement, I mean, penetration, width every time. Yeah. That's why. That's why monos suck at killing. Mm -hmm. They never get the width. Mm -hmm. Never. You know, something yeah. to open my eyes a little. So, so that bear that we had out in front of the tent last week, and and we were dressing it all out, and Chuck came over. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess I could say Chuck. Chuck came over and he's looking at the the carcass of the bear after it was skinned out, and it's and it's actually pretty amazing to me. It looks it's tiny. The actual carcass of the bear is not very big. Mm -hmm. uh, the fur kind of I guess gives it that kind of yeah. you know, bigger it's look. Bl but black bears, black, black bears. bears yeah, yes, yeah. I'm talking about black bears. Um, it almost looks like the carcass of what a dog would be, right? Like uh, so. I think Mason's bear might have been 150 pounds or so, and then you get it all torn down, and it just mm -hmm. looks like this little dog, like like smaller than a wolf. Mm -hmm. um, and when you see how wide, like he come up and he measured how wide uh, a broadside shot would be for that bullet to get through and, and pass mm -hmm. through both lungs, and it's just there's not much there. Bear, no. It's almost like a weak animal. No, there's not a lot bears. going on there. Yeah. Black bears aren't that tough. They just have weird kill zones. I will say, though, yes. on brown bears and grizzly bears. So I had a really good conversation with one of the outfitters I work with up there. And I think I was telling you one time that I, I did kind of survey all the outfitters that I work with. Say, hey, what's your recommended rifle setup of choice? Minimum caliber. Oh, that's what we were talking about. Bullet. Control round feed. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and um, he, he, he messaged me after we did that to tell yeah. me how how few outfitters talk yeah. about control round. Before feed. I built my 338 Norma for my grizzly bear hunt, I just decided, okay, I'm going to take a survey. And be like, what are all these guys that have killed dozens, if not hundreds, of bears going to tell me? Because that's what matters more than mm -hmm. than I mean, what somebody might just tell you, right? Mm -hmm. And um, interestingly, most of uh, the outfitters that I talk to, they really like slow, slow moving lead bullets just in general, like say a 300 grain round nose lead tip 375 H&H bullet because it just dumps everything inside of that bear. And I actually watched that 
with my own eyes. It works really, really good. And so that's why I'm more of an advocate of like a really big lead bullet that's going to get good expansion within the animal, but still somewhat bonded, whether that be, um, well, what's a good example of that? Like a trophy bonded bear claw, um, like nozzle partition. Swift Shiraka or Swift, Swift uh, A-frame. Yeah, A-frame. Um, I've seen one of those kill a bear before. It did a really good well. An Acubon kind of goes with what and you're Ac- saying too. Acubon. A 300 grain Acubon, yeah. 338 Acubon edge, would be fantastic. Or um, if you are going to use a mono, go light for caliber. Mm-hmm. You want them moving as fast as possible because you want that initial shock. And like my bear, even though it was only 200 yards and 246 hammer going 2,900 feet per second at the muzzle, it shocked the bear. End result was dead bear. I could show you the video and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. After that initial shock, he was not even flinching with double lung shots. Like it mm. wasn't even affecting the him. Adrenaline was pumping. He was so charged up. And I, yeah. I, I actually showed Adam Grenda that video and he's like, dude, you got lucky. I was like, I think I did because he, he got shocked enough where it took his rear legs out. It must've shocked his spine a little bit. He couldn't run for cover. But if he had had his rear legs, I don't know if I would have gotten follow up mm. shots in that bear. That that permanent we we're gonna have we're gonna have something to prove this theory pretty soon. Mm-hmm. But that permanent womb cavity mm-hmm. that those monos make, not to mention the stretch, you know, the what you call shock value, they suck. Mm. They just do. Yeah. Going back to the lead, what what was the caliber of choice when you asked those? Yeah, guys? yeah. Keep finish telling that story. Yeah. No, it's this podcast are all about yeah. big caveats. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm all about the caveats. So, <laughs> so your yeah. survey of all the guides in Alaska. So from a guide's perspective, guides like to carry 375s or 416s because they want to be able to stop a charge or follow up at close range recovering a bear. But their recommendation for clients is almost always 30 cal and 338s for grizzlies and 338s and 375s for browns. And it's interesting that you said basically a, a heavier bonded or solid bullet going a bit slower, mm. but leaded. Yes. That was interesting. So like a 338 yes. edge with a 300 Acubon would be pretty ideal because that's not enough horsepower to get it moving it crush you know, crazy fast. But yeah, inside of 500 yards or, yeah. or 400 yards like you do yeah. on a bear, you know, yeah. you and could just follow up and just. And you do have to keep in mind guides, um, they want to get you inside of 200, preferably less than 100 yards on a big bear, not because they don't necessarily trust everyone's abilities but for that follow-up shot Mm -hmm. they want you close because they want you to be able to charge another one in him and so we would just be dumping we'd have the chuck mindset just send as many as you can yeah until he's down what like what about on the control round feed push and push round what was their thought process he's been itching ass this itching yeah because I also talk like to a drink, lot of people. Drink of monster it is first. like a lot of people kill dangerous <sighs> animals, and I two AT. It's basically came back to the gun that they used the most, so they had confidence in. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter if it was controlled round feed or push round. Interestingly, so I didn't open that question with guides and outfitters of what's your preference. I asked them, "Tell me about the gun that you recommend." You know, don't let me put that in your. Mm-hmm. You know, don't let me give you the answer mm-hmm. first, right? That's how I ask the question. So that way I kind of get that unbiased. And almost all of them are using a Remington 700 push feed. And then when I ask the question, do you think that a controlled round feed type action is a good idea? And they're like, well, you know, yeah, that you, now that you say that, yeah, it's probably a good idea, but um, I've just never used one. Like, yes. like one of the guys that, the, the guy that I killed my grizzly bear with, um, 
he has like seven bear killer guns, he calls them. They're just all 375 H&Hs. He goes out and buys a used Remington 700 long action, has it rechambered in 375, throws like a Leupold 3 to 9, 3 to 10 on it. Uh-huh. And he's like, <laughs> this is a bear killer. This yeah, is just, like a, this in that situation, you like a, you know? to prevent scope failure, you might want, let's say, some fixed power. Not, I don't want to say low mm-hmm. cost or something, but maybe something that doesn't have all the adjustments possibility for failure. Just, yeah. just red lock tight the shit out of everything. Yeah, and, he he was also, <laughs> and most outfitters are not a big fan of like turreted style scopes because in the moment, unless a client is very technically proficient, it's a distraction. Whereas a 200 yard and in gun is a point and shoot weapon mm-hmm. where it's just get let on target, right? Whereas, you know, if you start adding turrets and windage and all that stuff, it's just, it distracts people in the moment. And then also... Unfortunately, sometimes it can give people more confidence in taking a shot they probably shouldn't. So, like, if you take a shot on a grizzly bear at like four or five hundred yards, there's some flight time with that bullet, right? So, even if you have the absolute perfect shot on the first one, you're probably going to have a hard time with follow ups just because of flight time there. Um, or maybe you're going to miss a windage or whatever, which for whatever reason, those aren't as big of a deal on like a caribou. Um, shoot a caribou at four or five hundred yards, they're not that tough. I hate to say it, but if you Mm -hmm. hit that caribou, it's as long as it's within the torso, he's going to be yours. He's not going anywhere. They're they're not tough. They're like big antelope, basically big pronghorn antelope. They're just not that tough. When you're in uh, when you're hunting in bear territory in Alaska, are you still carrying that Glock 20? Usually. What is your uh, ammo of choice? Uh, Buffalo boar. Have you had to use it? Okay. I how used about it on a ptarmigan one time for dinner? Nice. You just have to. You got to skim them across the back or hit them in the head. Otherwise, they. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you were surveying these outfitters, did you happen to ask pistol type questions like that? Yeah, and a lot of their guides just carried like a Glock. Some of them carry like the big chest canyons, whatever. Uh-huh. Most of them just carry like a Glock. Some so a ten mil Glock, yeah, pretty but, standard. But that's uh, interesting because. Um, I do send a lot of clients in the field for like DIY moose, DIY caribou type hunts. And that question always comes up for people that haven't hunted Alaska before. Do I need a sidearm? What kind of sidearm would you recommend? And the reason that I carry a sidearm in Alaska is so I have something in the tent. Most of the time I actually don't carry it with me in the field because a long gun will always be more effective on a bear than a pistol. I just always carry my long gun. And then also in Alaska, I always hunt with something seven millimeter or 30 cal or larger, um, even for something like caribou or blacktail deer. My first blacktail deer hunt, I took my 338 Norma. Why? Because I was in brown bear country and I wanted to pressure test my gun, see how it did on Kodiak. Mm-hmm. Like, are there any failure points on this? Hey, what better opportunity than on a deer? There's low consequence. So I don't carry my pistol on my hip most of the time unless. Um, unless I'm packing meat where I just, I need something quick and maybe my rifle's not going to be in my hand or something, but otherwise the pistol actually stays in the tent the whole time. Just so I have something, something easy and maneuverable in the middle of the night, if something gets into camp or whatever, cause I don't want to have to bust out a long gun with mm-hmm. people in tents around me, you know, close quarter weapon. Yep. So what about those, uh, electric fences in camp around never your used camp? One. Never used one. I've never used one. Um, but interestingly, most of these areas that you hunt in Alaska that have bears, they also hunt bears. 
And so bears have a very strong fear of man unless they've been habituated. Like some of these areas that have DIY caribou hunts where they like kind of going back to like the grizzly bear hunts are over here, the caribou hunts are over here. Sometimes when you do have grizzly bears over in those caribou areas, they don't get hunted as much. And so they learn that behavior that they can steal meat from a hunter without consequence. Those bears are more dangerous than these bears over here that get hunted, right? So no different than like lower 48 bears versus Alaskan bears. They're really different animals because they just, they've learned different behaviors. And so more often than not, like when I'm caribou hunting, even if I have meat, I'm, I'm not putting it super far from my tent. I actually want it somewhat close to my tent because bears know I'm there. They're not going to come and get it unless they've been habituated and learned that behavior without consequence. Mm -hmm. So, but it's, it's really not as big of an issue as people think. It's just something that you have to make decisions based on. Is there any season where you could t potentially hunt a caribou and an interior mm -hmm. bear at the same time? Yep. Really? Typically in like late August, September time period. Okay. Yeah. So that September 1st, hard horned caribou, you could still kill a bear at the same time, mm -hmm. same area. Yep. Nice. Yeah. Most of those seasons they start, well, like most areas in like Southern Alaska for grizzlies start September one, but I want to say up there, it starts in August as well. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I asked you that one there. Yep. On your, on your, uh, you're always just carrying a bigger caliber for usually because of the bears. Or do you just generally hunt with a bigger caliber? Generally hunt with a bigger caliber, but even like recommended calibers, I always tell hunters, like, even though you could kill like a blacktail or a caribou with like a six or a six, five, I'm usually carrying a seven or a 30 because yeah. in these areas it's very windy. And so I'm trying to buck the wind as well. And then it also just doubles that, you know, that's better bear defense too. Have you so. ever heard of a six UM? <laughs> I've heard of the six UM. Before I go, Dave, I don't want to get on that topic. I want to actually ask you about, it comes up on Rockslide all the time, rain gear in Alaska. Mm -hmm. What do you, what do you tell people? What do you, what do you use? So I personally have had great luck with the, what is it? The Sitka Stormfront mm. Gen 1, not Gen, Gen one. 2, Gen 1. Um, I have heard a lot of complaints about Gen 2 Stormfront in Alaska. Was Tyler, do you remember Tyler, you know Tyler Frill? Yeah. Was his debacle with Gen 2? Okay. It was Gen 2. And even uh, my boat captain on Kodiak that transported me for the blacktail hunts, mm -hmm. he even said the exact same thing Tyler did. He's like, yeah, I almost died because of that rain gear. And uh, I don't know what it is about that rain gear, but something just isn't right. So for and the guy that can't get a Gen 1 Stormfront, what would be the next best choice? Mm. You know, I've been hearing good things about first lights, heavy duty stuff lately. Yes. But legit. I've had a lot of people previously also say like the, the earlier generation Kuya Yukon stuff used to be pretty good, but now it's, I don't know why, but everyone that I've talked to that has used the newest stuff said it, it eventually leaks for some reason, but all, all breathable rain gear will eventually leak. A lot of the guides up there will just use Heli Hansen Impertech. The rubber oh, PVC. Yeah, the rubber ring. PVC. We we yeah. talked about that before. It's like you you have to pick your poison. Your PVC. You're going to get wet just from mm -hmm. sweat, or you're, you know. What's the name of that first light? Damn, the Omen. Omen. Is, is it Omen from First Light? Like not remember. the Seek. The Seek stuff sucks and it I wets out. I've never used it. The Omen. It's more. It's not very breathable. It's yeah. heavy, but it's more it's like, uh, you know, the fish and waders. Mm -hmm. It's more like that kind of material. Yeah. It's it's fucking legit. So I guess when you like like if you're talking to Ryan and me and we're used to hunting here in Idaho, Montana, mm -hmm. Wyoming, that kind of thing, and we're about to go to Alaska. I'm sure like just like the rain gear needs to be heavier duty. 
what other parts of your gear set. I saw some different type of tents that I'm not used to seeing in some mm-hmm. of your feed. Uh, so tents, other thing. What other gear do you say? You know, you should probably rethink that versus what you're used to because it's Alaska. So interestingly, um, you mentioned waders that those rain gear were kind of like waders. I actually tell people that waders should be considered part of your layering system in Alaska. Optional, you bring or mandatory, you bring them. Optional, you use them once you get there. And the type of waders should be dictated by where you're going. No different than rain gear. So like if you're going to coastal Alaska on a coastal brown bear hunt, I'm going to tell you that you should not bring re- breathable rain gear. You should bring Heli Hansen Impertec, at least a top, um, and plan on wearing Sims Guide Model Waist Height G3 fly fishing waders with a stocking foot boot and a lace, lace-up style boot. Like legitimately wear waders and hike in them. And you can even get regular hiking boots, like lightweight synthetic material hiking boots. Synthetic is somewhat important because it doesn't retain as much water. Um, and it's lighter weight, go up two sizes and maybe one size wider and wear those with fly fishing waders. It's actually very, very comfortable. Those are chest waders? Um, or you can do waders? chest height or waist height. Okay. I use waist height for those Sims. Is that waiter going over your boot? Mm-hmm. Um, Put the boot on over. It has a, oh, so it's like a, it's a, it has a neoprene stocking foot style booty. Oh, that's yeah. why you say get your boots bigger. Mm-hmm. Okay. Go up two sizes in boots or you can use, um, uh, just regular wading boots, but typically wading boots are not supportive for hiking. They're just meant for like short hikes to and from like a truck and a stream. Mm. Um, the uh, Orvis Pro Guide Model boot is pretty good for wading boots, and that's really lightweight and has little little holes in the side to drain water. But like another thing that I've found that works pretty good is like a Crispy Colorado. That's a really lightweight, stiff hiking boot. Go up two sizes in length, one in width, and then you can actually poke holes in the side of it to drain water. And here you have a badass wading hiking boot now. Um, so that's kind of on the extreme side for like coastal brown bear hunts and moose hunts in really marshy areas. But otherwise you should always have some kind of wader with you on my grizzly bear hunt last year. I hunted in waders the whole time and literally Sims stocking foot G three guide model waders the whole time. I even packed my bear out three miles wearing waders through rivers and streams. But what that allows you to do is not have to put an overboot on for crossing water features. So, and that's, you know, kind of the give and take, like everything. If you're wearing waders most of the time, then you don't have to put anything on, mm-hmm. but then it, you're not going to be as mobile or fast. Right. And the reason that I am very particular about that waiter being a Sims G3 guide model is because they're the best fitted, the most breathable. They have kind of a soft face, so they're quiet. So you're not like the, you know, trash bag man trying to stock something <laughs> in the brush. <laughs> When, um, I, when but, I went to um, Kodiak, we used uh, Luke Moffitt. I don't know if you know Luke mm-hmm. Moffitt. He, I know who he is. We went. I went with him, and he. We used a hip waiter. It had an, it was an overboot, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. We didn't wear it all day. We just crossed the boggy shit and then put it on, mm-hmm. and it was kind of interesting. It has like a really hard like vibram sole. Yeah, yeah, and they're they're not like super durable, but they did the mm-hmm. the task well. I so. think I know what I know which ones you're talking about. I don't you think they make called? them anymore. They don't. They're. I still have two pairs. They're awesome. Yeah. Those are good. Um, but so if you're going somewhere extremely wet, very cold, I'm probably going to tell somebody to get Heli Hansen in protect top rain gear. So like coastal brown bear hunt, 10, 12 days where you're going to be in a tent, cold and miserable the whole time. You want the most, the most waterproof thing. Now for like caribou hunts or all these other hunts, I have done just fine with my Sitka Stormfront Gen 1. And I've never wetted it through, not one time. Even when I, I packed a moose out um, 
in four days of rain in 2018 wearing that rain gear and I did not wet through. You must not use it a lot. Is that stuff must Only, be like gold to you? Oh, it's, it's, it's all the edges are starting to get frayed and stuff. And it's like, it's at the very end of its life. But mind you, I'm not a guide, you know, I, right. I'm not spending a hundred days in the field. I'm using it for 10 days at a time, a couple times a year. And so it's why it's lasted so long. Um, but it is at the very end of its life. And so, I mean, almost any of these breathable rain gears are going to work fine on a caribou hunt. The rain gear is going to be mostly for wind protection and rain sometimes, but you'll probably end up wearing it more often as a windbreak than anything up there. I'm going to go ahead and guess XO backpack. I do wear XO. Uh, I've used a few different packs. Why'd you say XO? Boise, Outdoor International, XO's uh -huh. right there. Yeah. Okay. Just an educated guess. So Outdoor so, International's in Boise also? Yep. Okay, okay. Yep. Yep. Headquarters in Hagerman. Used to have an office there in Boise. Russ lives in Boise still. And then Corey, he's down in Hagerman. Um, but I do use currently the XO. And up until this latest model, the K4, I kind of bounced back and forth between Kafaru and XO. And um, that's pretty much where I've landed after trying a bunch of different stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, previously to this K4 coming out, I would not recommend an XO for packing a moose quarter. I actually know several clients that have snapped their XOs packing really? moose quarters. Yes. And a part of that was a bad run of frames, I think, like the, the frame material. But Steve like literally swapped everybody out when he had a bad run of frames. It was like titanium and they switched it back or vice versa. Yeah, it yeah. was some kind of aluminum Yeah, that's what. that it had hairline cracks that couldn't be caught in inspection from the bending process. And then he switched everything back to titanium. Kudos to Steve. He did that on his own dime. He didn't have to. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know what? That, that's one of the things I really like about him. It's not like other pack companies aren't honorable or make something right or whatever, but I just, you know, I think very highly of Steve. Um, well, and it's also now, like a gunsmith. I'll take the gunsmith in my town over the gunsmith, you know, I have to ship something to. So if mm -hmm. something breaks, you can go right to him and say, Yep. Yeah. And in my case, I mean, living in Iowa, I mean, I'm very separated from all these companies. So, I mean, it's like, oh, no that's way right. I, a mail I keep something. thinking you live in Boise like everybody else. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. And so, um, previously I bounced back and forth between those two, but I've been using the K4 a lot. I actually, I prototyped one of them last year too. And I, I'm really, really happy with that pack. So that's what I plan on using going forward. What was the pocket situation that Chuck was bringing up? Cause he tested one too. Oh, they just didn't like the pocket format on the K4. They're just overall. Overall, yeah. it sounded like there was some pocket that had a zipper that maybe shouldn't like have he, a zipper. He took or... the, what I'm guessing is he took that <clears throat> zipper off the back, took that pocket off the back, or vice versa. I don't know. The EXO, but getting on the note on the, I can't remember mm. on the pocket thing. I'm not trying to mm. jump the question, but uh, they're very similar feeling now to the Kefaru to the K4. Yeah, to me, they're they're like one step closer. Kind they're of like that very feel. like yeah. They're yeah. They use two vertical frame stays now versus a like U shaped frame, mm -hmm. and the, the the that was really the only thing I didn't like about the K three. It just it wasn't quite as durable feeling to me, mm -hmm. and then over time I started getting a little bit of a creak, and um, I think they ended up swapping out the the carbon cross member stays on my frame. Um, and then it slid down my hips a little bit under like really heavy loads, like 70 to hundred pound type stuff. But like last year on my grizzly bear hunt with the K4, I had a full body soaking wet grizzly bear cape plus skull in that 5,000 cubic inch bag. And, um, I packed it all out on my own and it didn't slide once. It was that, very, very comfortable for what it was. Like the earlier versions, I, I like a super 
stiff pack mm-hmm. and they were too flexible. I didn't like the, yeah. flex, the K4 seems to be a lot stiffer. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So I really, I really like that pack, but I do also, I do also like Kefaro. I just, you know, to simplify things now that I'm, I'm really, really happy with that K4 and, um, I'm also good friends with the guys over at XO. So I think very highly of those guys and they've taken good care of me. So if you're in a tent and it's wet, Alaska, what's your tent of choice? Almost all the tents that I've used in Alaska are a Cabela's guide model geodesic six man. So large tents, not backpacking tents. They weigh between 25 and 30 pounds, depending on which model you get. Uh, you can fit cots in them. They have attachments all around the upper ring where you can. And you could do that too, because you're getting planed in. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So it doesn't so matter. You're not all carrying of my, my hunts that I've done in Alaska are fly in like base camp style hunts where you establish a main base camp and then just day hunt from that. Mm. So like, I'm not worried about having to backpack a tent around because I'm always come back to camp every day. Um, that's actually my preferred style of hunting in Alaska. Cause you know, for like a 10 to 14 day hunt, you can be decently comfortable there. So you can bring a little bit heavier sleeping bag. You can have a nice cot air pad to go with it. A little bit bigger tent that you can stand in on weather days. Cause mm-hmm. being stuck in tiny tents on weather days really sucks. Yes, it does. Yeah. <laughs> huh? Any other gear you can think of then that you talk to guys about for Alaska? Um, yeah, rain gear, weapon, all the other stuff, boots. backpack, matters. boot you're wearing? Boots, important. Yeah, I wear Lathrop and Sun boots, the wide model, I believe. Yeah, that's what I've landed on. Um, sleeping bags, pretty important. I do use the uh, Kafaru slick bags up there and uh, their puffy jacket, the Lost Park Parka. That's pretty much been the gold standard up there. Mm-hmm. That's actually, those are the only puffy jackets and sleeping bags I recommend for Alaska now. Okay. Yeah. I use a 20 and a zero depending on the time of year. Nice. You just not a down fan to want to take the chance of wetting out? No, I just don't even want to take the chance. I mean, it's, it's such a warm jacket and it, it's just super durable. I just have no reason to use anything else. Yeah. It has a Kedora in the right places and it just, yeah. it's like a sleeping bag. It is like wearing one. It's nice. Yep. I really like that. So, and the Frank church, he has some notes on here. What did you hunt in the Frank Church? I hunted mostly black bear and mule deer. But I've also killed an elk there as well. Nice. Yeah, so spring black bear, fall, like late season mule deer has kind of been what I focus on, like the late season controlled hunt stuff in November. Fly in, pack All animals. Fly in. All fly in. Yeah, fly in, pack in stuff. So you're flying in and taking horses in or backpacking in from there? Um, I've done both. Um, one of the bear hunts that I did with Caleb, we did a fly in horseback and then the next year, which those were spot and stock, um, the next year we flew in and then backpacked the whole thing. That was really fun. And then, but then the fall elk and deer hunts, that's all been like fly in horseback pack in. Are you flying the horses in on the plane? He rides them in. On the- they're usually, he has some they're usually head sticking out the window. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you say flying horseback, like you picture, like the, the guys are gonna be listening. They're like, "Well, if you're flying Pegasus. in, how do the horses get there?" <laughs> they have wings like Pegasus. Yes, yeah. nice. Now, a lot of the outfitters they'll either winter their stock back in the wilderness, or they have their guides ride them in at the beginning of season and ride them out at the end of the season. Okay. But some of these areas in the Frank Church are so remote; it's like a two to three day horseback ride. Okay. Like we're talking and, twenty and miles. We're talking like. 
60, 70, 90. So, oh my goodness. Yeah, cause you gotta keep in mind that Frank church country, it's all like salmon river breaks and stuff like that. It's, it's not just a straight ride. It's okay. We got to go two miles straight line distance, but it's eight miles to get there. You know, remember where we, we went down the Bitterroot last year and the fires were slowing him down. So he didn't hunt one section because he said it was a 40 mile ride and it was too late to get him in there one way. Yeah. Good Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's nuts. And those guys are tough. I mean, for them to get horses back in there in three days, those are like 20, 30 mile days. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And it's not, it is not, it's this kind of shit. It's not mm, like yeah. flat. Yeah. So so. Those, those guys are so tough. Like that's actually one of the reasons I really like hunting with those guys. Cause they, they push me really hard. You know, it's like you have to bring yourself up to their level to go in there. I mean, they're just living it and you go in there and it's like, Oh man. And they seem to always be this laid back guy with just a shitload of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Just they're interesting cats. Yeah. That'd be a cool hunt to do though. If we plan something. Yeah. In the, in the, Going the Frank church. church. Yeah. yeah. That's why I'm asking questions about it. Heck yeah. I'm yeah. Out. The Frank church, um, for most guys, uh, like spot and stock black bear back there. Cause I mean, be real. Are you going to fly baits in and go set them up multiple times? Probably not logistically for a private guy, but like going doing like a spot and stock black bear hunt. Mm-hmm. So fun. And the springtime back there is awesome. And then uh, mule deer hunts because packing elk out in the Frank church sucks mm-hmm. without stock. Mm-hmm. It sucks with stock sometimes. So mule deer is just a little bit more manageable. So And you said that has to be a draw tag for the late season? For the November hunts. Okay. So the November hunts. <clears throat> but as Idaho residents, you guys can draw that tag fairly easy mm-hmm. for the November hunts. For me as a non-resident, I'm pretty much relying on outfitter allocated tags, mm. which is not a landowner tag. It's it's a tag that the state of Idaho sets aside for outfitters to use for their clients. So they don't have to draw. But um, the October tags are pretty easy to get to. Those are the ones you can buy online over the counter. And can you hunt uh, spot and stock bear and deer in October then? You can, but um, for black bear in the fall, September is better. Okay. I think just the, the huckleberries are a little stronger. They're... They're still feeding quite a bit. Typically haven't gotten those winter storms yet. And that's what's going to, you know, shut the black bear down. Hmm. Okay. Anything yeah. else? Anything we missed? Anything you want to cover? Oh, we could keep going on and on about any of those things. <laughs> you know, <laughs> calibers, Alaska, bears. Mm-hmm. Love it. I love that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, like you guys, it's not just Western. We talked about it. It's Africa. Do you guys do tech set up Texas hunts? Yeah, we do some Texas stuff. The, I don't do a lot in Texas, but we do have some really good partners there. I just personally don't focus on it. It's just not my style of hunting that I relate to as much. Gotcha. Nothing wrong with it. It's just, you know, not my preference personally. But no, we have we have vetted partners all over the world. I think we have like 260, 270 partners worldwide. Um, North America to include lower 48, Alaska, Canada, South America, New Zealand, um, Asia, Europe, Greenland, Africa, all of them. Nice. So I'm just starting to kind of branch into more of the international stuff. Like I hunted Argentina this year and um, I'm just kind of, you know, picking one international trip a year, every other year, just kind of, you know, pushing my own comfort zone and getting used to international travel more because it's it's a different mentality for sure. You guys smoke some giant black bucks. We did. I want it. That's, I want my wife to shoot a black buck. Black buck hunting was awesome. That, that was so fun. Like red stag hunting was pretty cool. And I, I shot a nice free range red stag 
and it, it came in roaring and everything. And it, it was just, it was magical. And red stag are like this mystical mm. animal that like glow orangish red right at twilight. And they're just this really cool looking elk deer animal, but black hunting, black bear hunting was black buck hunting. Sorry. was really, really fun. It's like, it's like rifle antelope hunting. You're just like a kid in a candy store. Like, oh, there's one, there's one. Which one are we going after? <laughs> they're so cool looking. Yeah. They're yeah. super cool. And they're really small. I mean, they're, they're about the size of a coyote. <laughs> they have a little target. Yeah. They're well, fun. Where can people find you if they want to go hunting? Well, um, I am very open door about contacting me. I don't mind giving people my cell phone number. Give me a call. 319-936-6917. Give me a call directly. Shoot me an email. Um, Hanson at outdoors dash international.com. That's regular hashy dash, not lower hashy, uh, lower hashy uh, Instagram, uh, Kyle Hanson outdoors. And of course go to our website outdoors international. Just there's a form on there. You just get on. It's like contact us, anything you're interested in, just yeah, reach out. I'm not hard to get a hold of. And I try to keep it that way. So mm-hmm. that way people can reach me easily and communicate. Nice. Jake, anything else? All good. Appreciate you, man. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. I think we'll call this the bear episode. We got into bears pretty good. So that was yeah. fantastic. All things. We bears. got into a lot of stuffed bears. Yeah. yeah. When uh, we get done here, I'll show you the video of my grizzly last year. Oh, yeah. shit. You oh, guys yeah. don't get to see might, it. We do. Ha ha. Might be able to actually. <laughs> on the, uh, you want to hear it on the mic? Yeah. Right. Let's, let's hear right. it. Yeah. I didn't post this video because it's. You need one more camera intense. on the back of that phone. Mm <laughs> You like that? That's the S22 Ultra. Oh, shit. Yeah. All right. Where is this at? All right. Is it? Go ahead. The bear's coming down a river right now towards us. Wind in our face, getting ready to ambush him. This is a pretty big bear, too. What size was it? 7, 8. 7, 8. So nearly Boone and Crockett. 15, 16. I'll remember the number. Yeah, 24. 24. Are you army crawling through a swamp? I think that's me getting set up in the prone. Okay. Oh, you can hear him. Oh, you're close. I hear him in the back. <laughs> Give him one more. Here's the mag change. Give him one more. You need that UM magazine. A three down or one in. How many yards away is he? About 190. There he goes. Oh, he was roaring pretty loud then. That's good volume. That's good audio. Yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck yeah. Get it. That's awesome. I'll, I'll let you watch this video afterwards. Too, <clears throat> yeah. And you'll you'll see. Dude, I can hear the bear at, at 190 yards away. That's a oh, that's yeah. a mean growl. That makes my hair stand I, up. I always hear those, and I you know it's just hindsight's 2020. I always want to know like what would happen if you were shooting heavy for caliber burger bullet on that. Would it take four? Mm. I don't know. That's theory. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think that 
a burger in the lungs in that situation, good shot angle. I mean, I think it would have just, you know, just dumped him, honestly. But, I mean, a shoulder shot, I mean, I don't know, 250 to 300 grains of lead. It'd be hard to believe that wouldn't break a shoulder and put him down. I mean, that's just a lot of mass. Yeah. So I think they would work fine. Like I, like I said earlier, I know a guy that I saw the video. He killed a brown bear with a 230 OTM out of a 300 Norma, 300 Norma proof. How much did that bear weigh? My guide told me it was over 700 pounds. Oof. Yeah. It's that like seven, 800 pounds is a big interior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This particular area that I hunted has some of the biggest grizzlies in the state. Actually, currently the number two and the number four grizzly bear killed in the state of Alaska was out of this area. So just within a few miles of where I was at. Did so. you, did you spot your own hits with that awesome muzzle break you had on there? I did. <laughs> yeah. TI yeah. pro. Yeah, I watched. I watched my own impacts laying in the prone, down on the bipod, just loading into it, just gripping it. If you guys are here, you see him smile. You can see he's excited. He's reliving it. It's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I love what I do, man. And obviously, I'd, I love hunting. I love doing these things, and fortunate to be able to do them now. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Kyle. Yeah. If you have absolutely. any questions for me or Jake, get hold of us at podcast at shoot to hunt dot com or DM us at shoot to hunt on Instagram. Thanks for listening.